On the show today, I have Mark Tobin of Coffee Microcaps once again. Welcome to the new show in 2022. Yeah, thanks for having me back on, Charles. Uh, I'm hoping it's an indicator of uh, quality or success in my first appearance. Yeah, I'm sure lots of people learned uh, lots about the Australian market. So Mark did a, a long show with us last year on the ins and outs of the Australian market, the pension system and so on. Very interesting. And today I thought... Um, Let's get two shares, two share ideas from Mark that are also available to Easy Equities investors uh, to discuss those shares. So the two shares are Kelly Partners and Janison Education. So let's take Kelly Partners first, Mark. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, what they do and uh, sort of their size and why you like them? So Kelly Partners, I mean, it's uh, a micro cap capped at around that kind of 225 million Aussie dollars or that's roughly, let's say, just under 3 billion rand um, in South African terms. Very simple business. They're like an accountancy roll-up model where Kelly Partners is buying up all these smaller practices and then putting them in under the, the group and the brand Kelly Partners. So much like Delights and ENY and the big guys have, you know, multiple practices all over the world that all sit under uh, essentially a kind of a franchise model. And Kelly Partners is basically doing the same. Where they differ from, let's say, the big guys is, you know, they don't get into that like kind of consulting and major audit work of like public companies uh, and you know, big government departments, they're very much focused on the small and medium enterprise business space. Uh, similarly, they're not in, in the kind of commoditized, as they would say, personal tax return space in Australia. That's a very competitive space. And that kind of very entry-level personal tax work or very entry-level uh, business work uh, in terms of tax returns. These are kind of businesses that have... 20 plus employees, let's say, but like under maybe two to 300 employees. That's kind of like their, their kind of sweet spot business customers. So reasonably successful entrepreneurs kind of running their own businesses would probably be partnering with somebody like a Kelly Partners Group. Uh, the model is very simple. As I said, they're just buying practices at prices they think are fair. Uh, and the model works as such. They would buy a practice. They buy 51% of the equity in the practice. And the existing owners, partners, directors retain 49%. So in that model, you know, the partners are incentivized also to grow profits because, it, you know, 40, 49% of the profits are going to flow back to them. So it's not like they have a small inconsequential stake after the sale. They still have a decent stake in the business, um, but let's just say the controlling interest uh, rests with Kelly Partners. And then they also get then the benefit of a brand like Kelly, which is bigger than maybe their kind of regional local brand that people know them from around the area. Uh, based in Sydney, and that's kind of where the most of their footprint is, uh, but they definitely have ambitions to be a national player in Australia. Uh, so they have been buying more recently uh, practices down in Melbourne. They recently bought one in Canberra, uh, and they're going to look to just 
add more practices. So currently, you know, they don't have any representation in part Western Australia. They don't have anything in South Australia, which would be Adelaide. I don't think they have a practice in Queensland. I could be wrong. I think they might just have one practice up there. But, you know, that is essentially the model. And then you, with the, the roll-up, you start to get economies of scale um, because it's just more and more businesses coming in under the umbrella. Uh, the business done very well over the last four or five years. Uh, and a couple of interesting things about it. Um, one, it pays a dividend. Uh, so even though they're doing a lot of acquisitions, they manage their cash flow extremely well so that while they need capital to grow, they're still rewarding shareholders as they go. Now, by and large, microcaps are not usually noted for paying dividends. That's definitely not something that would normally be associated. So that's kind of a, a marker of quality, I would say, that they have to do. The other really interesting thing about the dividends is they pay their dividend on a monthly basis. Now that is like nearly like unheard of, especially in the microcap world. I know one or two REITs do uh, monthly distributions, uh, but I struggle to think of another operating business that pays a dividend on a monthly basis. Now the yield is not you know massive on it, um, but it is quite nice to get uh, a check into your account uh, every single month, be it a small one. That kind of dividend payout policy, you know, to me suggests that both the management and the board are very comfortable with the cash flows that come through this um, business and that they're willing to commit to paying shareholders on a, on a monthly basis. Uh, Brett Kelly, who founded Kelly Partners, he is the majority shareholder in the, in the group, the ASX listed vehicle he owns just over uh, 50% of the group and has indicated that he has no intention of selling down below 50%. So it's, you know, big founder insider ownership um, within the business. And it's been, it's been listed now for about four or five years. So there's, you know, quite a decent amount of annual reports and results and stuff you can backtrack on and, you know, track how they've done over the last couple of years. And, you know, there's nothing to say that the strategy is going to change and, you know, they've executed very well to date. So I'm expecting more of the same in kind of 2022 where they snap up, let's say, five to 10 practices a year. That just gets added into the base. And assuming they don't have uh, any impairments due to bad practices or paying over the odds, um, the model works. And that's the key with all roll-ups is don't pay too much and make sure you've got your due diligence right on the other side so that you don't have to have uh, big impairments coming down the line. And to date, they seem to have been able to affect that. And given their size and the kind of the part of the market that they're in, they're not competing against the lights in E&Y and they're not competing against the really kind of commoditized personal tax, very entry-level business tax, but they're really in that kind of mid-market space and they're trying to get a national footprint in place in that mid-market space. Two questions. The one is on growth. How much is acquisitive versus organic? And the second question is, what does the debt look like? If they're buying a business, do they buy it mostly for cash? Do they buy it mostly of debt or a combo? So let me take the second one first, if, if I can. So they never take on debt to do acquisitions. Um, any of the debt that's in place uh, remains at the 
at the individual kind of partner level. So all of the acquisitions that they're doing are pretty much funded out of cash flows. So that's why they can also say to you, this is roughly how many acquisitions we're going to do in a year because they're not going to raise debt to do more acquisitions. If you look at any of their kind of presentations, they're kind of very clear on, okay, every year we should do five to 10 acquisitions and the sizes are going to range between here and here. Um, so they, there is a bit of debt at the head level, but nothing to be overly concerned about. And they're certainly not constantly raising debt or indeed raising equity capital to buy these businesses. It's primarily being funded out of cash flow. In terms of the acquisitive versus the organic growth, definitely the majority of it is coming from uh, acquisitive growth just because they haven't got that many practices. I think they're up to about maybe 20, 25 practices now. So obviously, as you add in a new one, it does make a, f- a fair bit of difference to the base. In terms of organic growth, let's say between 4 and 8% an hour. So it's a bit of GDP growth plus a few uh, synergies. So it's not, it's not a massive organic growth story. The main story is, can they execute this acquisition and roll-up strategy effectively? Uh, and as I said, the track record today would suggest that they can, and they're kind of good operators in this space. Uh, and you're basically backing Brett and the management team there to continue that strategy, extract the synergies as you would expect by having a big base that you can leverage your brand, finance, HR, all of that gets controlled at the head level. So there's no operating heads down in the in the individual practices, they are literally just there to service clients. Everything else is done for them in the background, from HR to finance to marketing to lead generation. All of that is handled at the head company level. And then the practices literally just have to service clients. So, you know, if you're running a big practice that you've built up over the years, all that business operation headaches, plus you get to take some kind of capital off the table, for some, I guess, guys, that's a fairly attractive offer. And you get to retain a decent stake if you're in your 40s and you're like, well, I can't retire now. Um, but a lot of my wealth is tied up in this business. And you can get a little bit of money off the table while retaining a decent enough portion that, okay, my profit share out of this business is still going to be pretty good. And the valuation? Valuation has crept up a bit, obviously, as they've executed i wouldn't say it's on the expensive side yet but it's definitely getting there and the share prices has gone up a lot in the last kind of 12 months so valuation i'd say is maybe on the expensive side of fair if that's a (laughs) if that's the case but it's kind of difficult to really say okay on a 12 month forward view or 24 month forward view is it expensive or cheap because if they do no acquisitions, uh, you know, if they can't find anything to buy and vendors' expectations of prices are above what they want to pay, then it could look very expensive because the growth is not there. But if they're picking up a lot of stuff at cheap prices according to their model and they actually deliver more acquisitions than they plan because the, um, pricing is good, then it could look cheap. So it's a, it's a hard one to say, you know, what it'll be because it's, a lot of it is determined on the acquisitions. I'm just basing it off of, okay, here's what they said they're normally going to buy, and they, by and large, delivered that number of acquisitions uh, over the last two or three years. And you say, okay, well, 
If I put that out 12 months and if I put that out 24 months, you know, roughly where am I going to land in terms of uh, a revenue and, a, and an impact A, as they call it, at the, at the bottom level? So what do you think is the potential upside here and what are the risks? I, I, you know, I think the potential upside is a lot of people don't like the roll-up story um, because they can go awry when they start paying you know, too, too much for stuff or they take on too much debt to fund this huge acquisition spree. And that's why I think Kelly Partners is different to what we've maybe seen in a lot of roll-up scenarios. Um, and I like the fact that it's early in the piece. They haven't got a huge number of practices there yet. So when they do start adding stuff, uh, whether it's one, two, three, four, five practices a year, it actually has an impact on the bottom line. Now, if, if, if they had seven or 800 practices across Australia and they were still trying to buy up a few more, maybe moving across the Tasman into New Zealand, I wouldn't be as keen on it because even if they had 20 practices a year, it's not going to really make much of a difference uh, at, the, at the bottom line. But because they're kind of at the start of their journey, I feel like the acquisitions make a material difference to the profit line and that monthly dividend stream in in an environment where there's low yield, especially in Australia, it's an attractive uh, proposition. And the fact that it's coming from a micro cap, I think makes it kind of stand out uh, from the rest of the kind of micro cap space. And then finally, do you think there's a reasonable probability that this can be a 10 bagger? And you own some shares. What time frame have I got for the 10-bagger? Uh, let's say 10, 15 years. Uh, we're long-term investors. We're not traders. Um, do I think it could be a 10-bagger? I think it could, but you're going to be on a long time horizon. Yeah, I don't think this is one that you're going to see up 100% in a year or 150% in a year. The strategy doesn't lend itself to an execution or, or, or a catalyst style uh, event that's going to really kind of catapult them up. This is more slow and steady uh, and just like constantly executing bit by bit, bit by bit. It's, you know, it's just chipping away all the time. So I think it has the potential to be, but I think you're, you'll want a very long time horizon to uh, achieve it. Do I own shares in it now? No, I don't. But let me preface that by saying I don't hold shares in any ASX microcaps because of my business that I do in Australia. It just creates too many conflicts of interest. So while I follow the space closely, my exposure to ASX microcaps is through uh, microcap fund managers rather than holding them directly uh, just to kind of cut out the conflicts of interest with my kind of day job, if I can say that. And let's turn to the second one, uh, Janison Education. Can you run us through what they do? So, again, a pretty simple business when you say it out loud. They digitize assessments. It's as simple as that. Um, but as we know, the technology that goes behind anything is a lot more involved than might appear on the tin. So they do mainly for schools assessments, whether that's NAPLAN, which is one of the big ones in Australia, which um, most 10-year-olds in Australia would um, partake in a, a rough gauge 
where are the bulk of students at kind of age 10 in Australia? And it's you don't get like a certificate or anything like that. It's more for government educators, high level to get a sense of, okay, how is the general cohort of students right across the board? Another one that they do at a very high level that they've just started to roll out is with the OECD, which is the PISA one. P-I-S-A, and that looks at like kind of 15-year-olds, checks, you know, what is their level of ability in terms of maths, science, reading. Uh, South Africa generally does very poorly in it, even though they're not an OECD one. They are a list of countries that conduct PISA studies in order to benchmark themselves against where most other countries are in the world, whether they're OECD or not. Now, they've only just started that relationship um, so previously, these were done, uh, as you would expect, with pen and paper. That has now started to be digitized in various countries. But this is a huge uh, undertaking at any country level. So I think they've got nine OECD countries now who are using their platform to do these PISA assessments. Uh, they've got six non-OECD countries. But the potential is there that there's upwards of 50 countries that can use uh, the platform to conduct these PISA tests. They've also been buying up a lot of other learning and assessment platforms. So they're a small bit of, you could say, like an aggregator. And then they're taking the best of those platforms, integrating it into their built-from-the-ground-up Janison assessment platform, and then using that then to perform whatever assessments the clients might need. So let's say the accountancy body in Australia, if you were doing your CPD from year to year to keep your uh, membership alive, uh, any of the assessments tests that you do will be recorded on the Janssen platform, basically in the back end. British Council used them as well. So for anybody who's ever looked at migrating, your English language ability will be tested and a few other things. That happens on Janssen. Uh, what's another big one? Uh, trying to think they have a few corporate customers who use it for their internal training and assessment so you know people who need to pass safety health and safety protocols in order to work in a particular workplace or to be even employed there you have to go through a certain level of health and safety training so it's the main driver of this one is how they how fast they can roll out the PISA tests on behalf of the OECD because every one of those countries that comes online, you're talking at least 50 to 100,000 students who are going to be sitting these tests, even at some of the smaller countries, it's, it's 50,000 students to get a, a solid baseline number. But then you could think of some of the bigger countries, Germany, France, even South Africa, for example, you know, they're all 80 million people in Germany. You take what the student cohort of that would be, same with South Africa, same with France. So that is kind of what people are focusing on at the minute. Uh, they've executed well to date. Uh, the few acquisitions have added some other growth drivers. Uh, but the key is now we're what, waiting to see how well they can integrate these other platforms because a lot of the platforms that they're buying have built for a specific industry or specific set of clients. Um, but they're very focused on, okay, we want to have one kind of learning platform, one kind of assessment platform that we can run everything on. And it's just a case of changing the front end to suit the particular uh, client, which 
they do just by selecting, okay, I'm from the British Council. Okay, here's what your front end will look like. Okay, we're doing PISA tests. Okay, this is what the front end of this is going to look like. Business is not yet profitable. I'm just going to say that it's approaching profitability. Obviously, as you can imagine, securing government work and work with the OECD, it's a long sales cycle and a lot of money has gone into getting the platform to where it is today. It's been 10 years in in development. But in the last, I would say, two years to 18 months, we're finally starting to see this thing coalesce and contracts, tenders being won, being executed on, and revenue starting to uh, come through. Uh, they've had to hire in a few more people, and a, a few people have come across with some of the acquisitions. So the, the, we haven't yet seen the operating leverage that I was expecting, but I'm, I'm expecting that to kind of settle down in the next 12 months as some of these raft of acquisitions that they've done in the last uh, 12 to 18 months Bed in Pisa, it's going to add one or two more countries. Tests will continue to to one goal, uh, and the base is going to get bigger and bigger. So it's it's one I would say that's more early in play in a than than Kelly, but I think it's still in a in a very good space. You said there's lots of growth opportunity in the OECD Pisa thing. So what? When would they break even and sort of what revenue and profitability does each country add? So let's say that they do all of the 50 countries or most of them, what would, what would they make? I haven't modeled that out, but if I, what, what I can say to you is since the, the PISA stuff has come on, you've seen a marked increase in revenue. So like revenues for last year were, were up in nearly 40%. Uh, and the annual recurring revenue which is about two-thirds of their their revenue at the minute. That was up 117%. And a lot of that is coming from the PISA stuff because it's on a per-learner basis. And there's also a fee that you have just to have access to the platform to run it. I, I'm not sure on what the profitability is per country um, because... It, it would it would depend on how many students that they're going to you know push through the system at an at an individual country level but I think if you're looking for something that's technology based education based and heading for an inflection point of flipping from that loss making to break even to moving into cash flow positive territory I think this is definitely one of the candidates to look at in, in terms of the Australian microcap space. And what's the market cap over there at the moment? The market cap, it's roughly around the same as um, Kelly. Uh, so it's a slight bit bigger. I think they might be just under the 300 million. I think they're around 270 or 280. It's come back a bit like kind of all tech has kind of had a, had a bit of a correction of, of note, but it'd still be under that 300 million, which is what I use as kind of the market cap for Australian micro cap as a definition. So obviously the market's expecting a lot of growth and profitable growth from this company, given that valuation, if it's still loss making. Well, I think, you know, the market is still looking for well into double digit growth from, from this business um, over the next, let's say two years, you know, we're talking 20% plus at the top line. Um, between what's going to come from the acquisitions, 
what's going to come from the PISA rollout, more acquisitions that they might do, but uh, they have done a fair few acquisitions of, of recent times. So I would expect them to maybe take the foot off the gas there and just work on, well, I would like them to just work on bedding these in and getting them, getting them done. But everything that's gone on the last two years with COVID, digital assessments have you know, had a huge move forward. And I think, you know, maybe they're trying to take advantage of that now where schools, governments, workplaces have adapted and a lot of maybe things that they've been looking at for a while have actually really proven themselves and have got, you know, much wider acceptance. And, you know, if they don't take a chance now, you know, the vendors might start looking for much more money than, than what they were previously expecting. And then to finish off, do they have any major competitors? And then is this also a potential uh, 10-bagger? I think this is a potential 10-bagger, I think, for sure. I won't say for sure. Uh, I did, but I think, you know, in a shorter time frame than, than Kelly, I think with the acquisitions, with PISA, with everything that they're doing in terms of New, they're also still working on the platform, you know, new products, new services, trying to enhance what they can do do for their customers, uh, which I always like. It's As I always say, it's much easier to sell something to an existing customer than trying to get uh, a whole new one. Look, they have a few competitors in the space, uh, mainly in the, in the US, uh, but again, they're a bit more kind of US-centric, US-focused. Whereas PISA and the stuff that they're doing with ICAS is another one is a bit more kind of an international flavor to it. Obviously, the U.S. market is so huge, you know, they don't tend to start looking internationally because they've got such a wealth of opportunities there. Um, but I, like everywhere, there's, there's, there's competition in the space and they definitely have some. But they've managed to land the big one, which was, which was PISA. And I think just executing that will require a lot of attention and a lot of work that I think, you know, to be worrying about, you know, maybe a contract here or there that a competitor might be winning, uh, I don't think is really going to stress them out too much. And that was Mark Turbin of Coffee Microcaps. Thank you, Mark. Thanks, Sharon.